Follow with me as I read verses 13 through 16, 1 Peter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And the first question that we need to answer is, what is holiness? Now, it's normal that when you think of holiness, you think of morality. Maybe the Ten Commandments, that you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't murder anyone. So almost always, when you think of holiness, you think of morality. It's true, because being holy does mean that, but I believe it means more than that. See, Peter here quotes an Old Testament book. I, I mentioned this book last week, Leviticus. Be holy, for I am holy. That's, that's Old Testament. In fact, that phrase is repeated a few times in the book of Leviticus. But you need to understand that the book of Leviticus isn't so much talking about holy people. It's not giving out the Ten Commandments. It's, no, it's talking about holy things. If you go to the passage that Peter quotes here, you are going to read all sorts of things that are called holy. Tables are called holy. Utensils are called holy. Pots and pans are called holy. So right there, you begin to realize that it's more than morality. Because what does a moral table look like? Anyone know? I mean, the furniture stores, if they got a hold of us, would just, sales would just take off, right? Come buy our moral table. And on the other side of the coin, what does an immoral table look like? Would you want to sit down and eat a table at an immoral table? So it doesn't work. It forces you to ask the question, what does the word holy mean? The Hebrew word means separate or set apart. Separate or set apart. So, so you can understand what God says, I'm holy. I am set apart from everything else. God is unique. He is in his own category. He's totally separate. There is none like him. So what does it mean to have a holy table or a holy pot? Well, the answer is that it's set apart for God's exclusive use. If you have a table back in that time and you're eating meals at it every day and you want that table to be holy, you don't preach the Ten Commandments to your table, right? You don't want your table to behave differently. It's a table. No, you give it to the priest to take it to the tabernacle and it's now used for offerings. It's, it's used for God. It's set aside for God and for God alone. So this, this then should affect our minds when we read of Peter's use of this phrase from Leviticus that we should be holy. It goes beyond morality. It does include morality. It doesn't exclude it at all, but there's more. There was a commentator that I found helpful this week that shares his thoughts in the passage. And listen carefully as I read it. He says, of course, to be holy means moral behavior, but these words in Leviticus that Peter quotes are not given in the context of moral commands and prohibitions to people, but the context of ceremonial restrictions dealing with clean and unclean things. For belonging to God, living on his terms, reserving ourselves for him, delighting in him, obeying him, honoring him, these are more fundamental than the specifics of obedience that we label as morality. So there's your definition. What makes the table holy? It, it belongs to God. What makes you holy? 
Not that, not that you're just moral and you, you should look to be moral in your life, but that you belong to God. You belong to him. So I want to look at the results of this understanding of holiness as we look at 1 Peter, because as Christians, we're set apart from this world. We're, we're made for God. And this should affect us. This should, this should alter how we live in this world, especially as we look at the new year coming tomorrow. So I have five reminders from the passage of 1 Peter about uh, what it means to be holy. And so as I begin, let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your, your constant presence with us, your provision for us in our lives. We thank you that we can join together as the body of Christ this morning and to, to come and worship you. And we've worshiped through, through singing and through giving and through the reading of your word. And God, now I ask that we can continue to worship you by the preaching of your word, that you would speak to your people this morning through your word. May we understand what holiness is, again, afresh and anew, and apply it to our life and look to live as holy people unto you in 2018. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to remind you of is to remember that God called you. Remember that God called you. Look at verse 15. It says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is virtually the same as God's giving new birth back in verse three in this chapter, where Peter writes, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And in Romans, Paul says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he called, he justified, in Romans eight. And so Peter, by mentioning calling here and four other times later in the book, reminds his readers that it was God who initiated their salvation when the gospel came to them in power and, and bringing them out, summoning them out of darkness into fellowship with himself. It was powerful. It was an effectual calling in the Christian life and, and all of it involves a, a calling to live with God and to be like him. And this call is the effect of God's uh, life-giving word that brings out us, uh, out of us, brings us out of rebellion and brings us into a submissive life of faith. And so we need to understand that this calling does not merely mean invite, but conveys the idea of God's power in bringing people from darkness to light. Just as God's call creates light when there was darkness in Genesis, so he creates life when there was death. You need to remind yourself of this truth. You need to remind yourself, especially the next time when you're sharing the gospel with someone. The power to save doesn't dwell in you, it dwells in God. You are just the servant bringing the good news. God is the one who calls, God is the one who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. Number two, we need to remind ourselves, remember that we are children of God. He says that there in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So the, the effect of this call or this new birth is that we become children of God. We're called children, not by birth, but by adoption. Among the Greeks and the, the Romans of the first century, the practice of adopting was rather common. An adopted son enjoyed the same privileges as a natural son, even to the point of sharing the inheritance. So hold your finger here in First Peter and turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 5 and 6. 
says he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Adoption is from him, it's from God. He, he predestined us for adoption. So adoption was part of God's plan. It was his idea, it was his purpose. It was not an afterthought. He didn't discover one day that against his plan and foreknowledge, humans had sinned and orphaned themselves in the world, and he came up with this idea to, to adopt them into the family. No, Paul says he predestined adoption. He planned it. And if we ask when this predestination happened, verse four makes it plain. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before the creation of the world and before we existed, God looked and he could see our need. He knew this. And he looked upon his son crucified and risen as the all-sufficient atonement for our sin. And because of that, he chose us to be holy and blameless. And to that end, he predestined us to adoption. It happened for the, before the creation of the world. And so the first thing you need to know about your adoption to God's family through Christ is that God chose you. And he predestined you in love for adoption before the foundation of the world. That should rock you. It should affect you. God's love for you and its expression in your adoption as eternal family for joy did not start in the world. No, it reaches back into eternity. And so when Paul says from, all, from him all are all things in Romans 11, he includes our, our adoption. It means that before the foundation of the world, he predestined you to be his child. And so therefore, adoption's not based on your fitness and your, your worth or how great you are. It's rooted in God's eternal purpose and his grace. And that means that your adoption is not fragile. It's not tenuous. It's not, it's not uncertain. God will not adopt and then find out that you're not worthy and then unadopt. He knows that we're unworthy. And he chose us. And he predestined us to be adopted into his family. So friends, this is firm. This is sure. This is unshakable. This is something we can take to the bank. We hold on to and in that, he calls us to be holy. There's a place in the Bible that perfectly puts this principle of holiness. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. And there it is. You're, you're bought with a price. You are a recipient of free grace. Therefore, you are not your own. You're not living for your own sake. You're living for God's sake. So when we come back to 1 Peter, turn back to 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 14, he says, then as, as obedient children. So this is crucial because this shows that something really changed inside of us when God called us. And namely, that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. Paul says this in Romans 8. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So the Holy Spirit enters us and begins to work the holiness of God in our lives. But how? How does this change happen? Well, that leads to the third thing. We need to remember we see things differently now. We need to remember that we see things differently. Verse 14. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed or be shaped to the passions of your former ignorance. Being called and made children of God, we no longer see the things in ignorance the way we once did. We, we see things differently now. 
We're not blinded, as, as Paul says, by deceitful desires. They don't, they don't deceive us anymore. We, we see through them. We're, we're not foolish anymore like, like a little child who takes a nickel instead of a dime because it's bigger. Have you ever seen this before? He says, do not be conformed, do not be shaped, which echoes back to Paul's words in Romans and, and chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he's saying, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its model. But let God remold your minds from within. And Peter is exhorting Christians to control their desires rather than be controlled by them. Remember that you're holy, you're set apart for God. He is yours and you are his. And we should know better because of this. But what, what should we know better? Well, mainly God. We know him better. We know the holiness of God. We don't assess human reality as superior to God in value. We, we are not ignorant of God's infinite worth because we remember the gospel. Once we were blind to the value of God, we turned away from the fountain of life and, and tried to, to hew out cisterns for ourselves, as Jeremiah says, that could hold no water. And now, by God's spirit, that foolishness and ignorance is gone, and we are beginning to assess things for what they really are. Now we see that the holiness of God is the supreme value in the universe. Now, there's, there's something else interesting, at least I found, in this study of holiness and from Peter's vantage point. It's interesting that Peter would quote the book of Leviticus, especially when you read of him in the book of Acts. If, if you know something about Peter's life, God had to teach him some lessons about the, the ceremonial laws. Do you remember this in Acts? If you remember in Acts, Peter had these rules on his mind because he was Jewish and, and he had all these rules about how you ate and how you dressed. And, and he would say to the Gentile Christians, you need to do these things too or you, you can't eat with me. And, and God gives him a vision and says, no, stop it. That's not an exact quote, but that's what he says. You read about it in Acts chapter 10. He tells them that Jesus Christ and all those laws are now fulfilled. They're all fulfilled in Christ. You're, you're now clean. You're acceptable in him now. And so it's intriguing to me that, that Peter goes to Leviticus and when it took him some time for himself to understand this and apply it. But the, the principle of holiness is still the same. Every part of your life has to be holy. Your life is set apart for God. Every part of us is set apart for God. So how does that hit us day to day? How do we apply that moment to moment in our life? You know, there's a place in Ephesians 6 where Paul is talking about the daily work of Christians. Now, there's, there's not a specific commandment in, in, in the Ten Commandments that deals with how, how you do your work. There's one about resting, but not one about work. And so Paul in Ephesians 6 says that when you are doing your daily work, don't do it for your boss. Don't do it for eye service. Don't, don't do it for others to, to notice you. Don't, don't work in that way. Because when your boss is there, you work hard and you're honest, but when he's gone, you'll be lazy or dishonest. So, so don't work in a way as a Christian to give a good impression to others. Don't work that way. Don't work for yourself even. Because if that's the goal, then you only do enough for what you want and what you think you need. 
You, you only want the, the attaboy at the end of the day if you work for yourself, if that's your motivation. He says, don't do it. He says, you should work for the Lord. It, it's the awareness that God sees all. You know that he's there, that he, that he cares about your work, and he's more interested than anyone else. You see, my friends, when you work for the Lord, you work more diligently. You're more conscious of how you work. You're more faithful. You're more honest. Because you're not waiting for your boss's praise. You already have the king of kings that observes and sees all that you do. And you work for his pleasure. And this will transform the way that you work. Believing that you're holy, that you're set apart for the king. You work not for yourself, but for the one who made you. You work for his glory. And then you apply that to every part of your life. And so moms that are sitting here, you parent for the glory of God. For his pleasure. Students that are here this morning, you study for the glory of God. You work hard not to please your parents or your teachers, but to please God. And retired people, you live your life in a way that honors and pleases God, not for anyone else but for him alone. And you do this not to earn your salvation, but because you're saved, living out your salvation. And so to be holy means you belong to God. Therefore, you don't live for yourself. And, and that principle of not living for yourself can be applied everywhere, even places where there are no moral rules. That's what holiness is. Well, the fourth thing we need to remind ourselves, remember we need to remember what you're saved from. We need to remember what you're saved from. The replacing of our former ignorance with truth about God leads us to put away the old desires and experience new ones. He says in verse 14 again, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. When we assessed God wrongly, we had deceitful passions and, and now Peter calls them former passions, they're, they're fading into the past. As much as we might have to fight them back with truth, they're not the defining power now in our lives anymore. They're former. They're not, they're not us any longer. And so while the term passion or desire can occasionally be positive, like in Philippians 1.23 where Paul desires to be with Christ, Normally, desire and passion indicate an unsanctified longing for fallen humanity in this world. And the problem with passions is not that a person enjoys or needs things in the material world. No, that's not the problem. But, they, but that the things of this age become gods to us. They become goals to us. We replace the Messiah with things in this world. And passions go after anything that satisfies that drive. It's, it's these desires that control most people and to conform to these desires to slip back into that lifestyle that you should have abandoned when you came to Christ. And, 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 and frankly, you probably know this, holiness is, is just plain hard work. And often we're lazy. We, we like our sins. And dying to those sins are painful. Almost anything is easier than growing in godliness. And so we try and fail, and we try and fail, and try and fail, and then we give up. 
It's easier, we, we think, to sign a petition protesting something, some atrocity in this life, than, than to love your neighbor as yourself. It's one thing to graduate from college ready to change the world. It's another to, to be resolute in praying that God would change you. And so we need to replace those desires in our, in our lives. We need to replace them with God. I read a book a few years ago, I was reminded of this week, uh, called The Obedience Option by David Haig. And I want to read a lengthy quote from his book about this idea of replacing our desires with God. This is what he says. One time when engaged in a conversation with a young man about his spiritual failures in the sexual realm, I really got irritated at him. He started making excuses for his immorality, trying to explain that he got into a situation where as much as he didn't believe it was right, sexual activity had been inevitable. In essence, he was telling me that there was nothing he could do about it. It really wasn't his fault since God had created him with a strong sexual need and urges. And when I heard all the garbage I could take, I interrupted him and asked, suppose that I came into your dorm room and caught you with your girlfriend as you were about to start this inevitable process. And suppose I took out 10 $100 bills and told you that they were yours if you just told her to leave, what would you do? Now the author says, I know what you're thinking. It's pretty stupid theology to think that you can pay people to stop sinning, that you can purchase righteousness for others if you have enough cash. But I learned something vital that day when this young man responded immediately, she would be gone, I need the cash. And I looked at him carefully and after a long pause asked, so what happened to the irresistible force of lust? What happened to there is no way I can stop this inevitable plan? What we both realized at that point was a very simple truth. One passion may seem irresistible until a greater passion comes along. The grip of lust was broken by his greater desire for cash. And if we take this principle into the arena of righteous living, it comes out like this. The only way to overcome a passion for sinning is with an overwhelming passion for righteousness. You see, when you sin, we are loving something other than God. You cannot both sin and love God at the same time. It can't happen at the same time. And we need to follow Paul's instruction to the Philippians. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. John Owen said, holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel and on our souls. And what's the gospel? It's not my work for Jesus, but Jesus' work for me. In other words, holiness happens not by only looking at ourselves, but by looking at Jesus. Therefore, it, it takes the loving act of other Christian brothers and sisters to remind us every day of the gospel. That we have everything we need in Christ. And, and when this happens, the good stuff rises to the top. The Puritans used to say that far too many Christians live beneath the level of their privilege. And therefore, we need to be told by those around us that every time we sin, we're momentarily suffering from an identity crisis. Forgetting who we belong to. 
that we're children of God, that we're set apart for him, that we're holy. And the only way to deal with remaining sin long-term is to develop a distaste for it in light of glorious riches that we already possess in Jesus Christ. Elise Fitzpatrick in her book, Because He Loves Me, she says this, one reason we don't grow in ordinary grateful obedience as we should is that we've got amnesia. We've forgotten that we are cleansed from our sins. In other words, ongoing failure and sanctification, which is the slow process of change into Christ-likeness, is the direct result of failing to remember God's love for us in the gospel. We forget. She She continues, she says, if we lack the comfort and assurance that his love and cleansing are meant to supply or our failures will handcuff us to yesterday's sins and we won't have faith or courage to fight against them or the love for God that's meant to empower this war. If we fail to remember our justification, our redemption, and our reconciliation to God, we'll struggle in our sanctification. Friends, we have amnesia. We forget who we are. We forget who we are in Christ. And so we need to remember what we've been saved from. Well, the last thing I want to mention, the last reminder this morning, we need to remember as children of God, we obey. We obey. That's the bottom line. To be holy means to obey. You know, these new desires and dethroning of old ones lead to obedience to God and a a non-conformity to the world in which we live. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do you guys have any interesting family traits? You know, something that your family does that maybe not all families do. I found this out about myself. I didn't realize a number of years ago. Here's an example. My wife and I were married in March of 2004. And uh, we moved out here that summer. But my birthday's in May. So just two months after we were married, we had our first troubling time. I mean, it was serious, for me at least. There's Katie getting ready for my birthday, the first one as a married couple. She innocently turned and asked me, Jeff, what do you want for dessert for your birthday? What do I want for dessert? What a strange question. What do you think I want? Is that really a question? I want cake. What else do you have for your birthday? I mean, are we savages here eating something other than birthday cake for your birthday? And she looked at me in horror. Well, my family, we don't do that. The birthday person selects a favorite dessert. At that moment, I wondered, who did I marry? (laughs) Seriously, I knew her family was weird, but this takes the cake. Literally. Their family, any old dessert will work for birthday. But not my family, no. We had cake like normal people. (laughs) That was a family trait. So it characterized my family, really at least characterizes me. Well, translate that to the Christian. Obedience characterizes every true child of God. And and sets a clear distinction between Christians who follow and believe in Christ and those that are not. Those that are sons of disobedience, it says in Ephesians 2. Obedient ones and sons of disobedience. They're clearly opposite. 
And the basic character of a believer is of obedience to God. And the basic character of an unbeliever is disobedience to God. Parents, have you ever said this to your kids? We don't do fill in the blank in our house or in our family. I remember when I was growing up, my parents would remind me of these family rules. Things that characterize our family. You don't jump on the furniture. You don't wear shoes inside the house. That was a family rule in our house now. Likewise, God has family and house rules, not just to make things run smoothly, but for our benefit. And Peter writes, as obedient children, if you are God's child, you should act this way. You either love Jesus and and seek to obey him or you hate him. There is no middle ground in scripture. And God says, as obedient children, do not be conformed. Be holy as I am holy. And if I had to summarize the New Testament ethics in one sentence, here is how I would put it. Be who you are. Now that may seem strange to you, almost heretical, given our culture's emphasis on being true to yourself. But, but so like so many errors in our world, this one represents a truth powerfully perverted in our world. When people say, relax, you're born that way, or quit trying to be something you're not and just be the real you, they're stumbling upon something that's very biblical. God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you that he's talking about is the you by grace, not by nature. God doesn't say, relax, you were born this way. But he does say, good news, you were reborn this way, another way. And as a believer, you belong to Christ. More than that, you're you're joined to Christ. By, By faith, through the Holy Spirit, we have union with him. Christ lives in you. You're on him and you're one with Christ. So he says, live like Christ. Be who you are. And that's the constant message to the New Testament. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. He says, we were buried therefore, in in Romans, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And in Christ, we are new creations so that we might live for him and not for ourselves. 2 Corinthians says, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in Christ, our our sinful flesh is put to death and a new kind of life, a, a new person actually is at work in us. In Galatians 2, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in Christ, we're no longer sons of disobedience and children of wrath, but we're alive with Christ and able to do the good works that he has prepared for us. He says in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. He says in Christ we're holy and precious and we're called to live like it. In Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, friends, time and time again, the Bible reminds us of our, our, our identity in Christ. It reminds us of our identity to call us into obedience to him. So don't strive after holiness because you cower in dread of God. Live in holiness because you're confident you already belong to God. If the possibility of holiness is so plain in the Bible, why do we find it so hard to believe? I think the biggest reason is because we're, we equate obedience with perfection. <clears throat> if, if walking in a worthy manner that we looked at in Colossians means that I never lose my temper or I never lust, or I never lazy, and I never do any good thing with mixed motives, well then, of course, holiness is, is impossible then. Likewise, if, if God-pleasing holiness means I have to be filled to the brim with every virtue without any room for improvement, then I'm wasting my time even attempting to be holy. Expecting perfection from ourselves or others is not what holiness is about. Does, does it ever feel like you don't have enough hours in the day to obey God. I feel that way sometimes. I don't mind the do not commands. They seem reasonable. I, I, I don't have to block off time in my day to, to make sure I can check off the list not to murder someone. Seem to handle that. But, but I get hung up on all that seems to be required of me to be a great dad, to be a super husband, a fabulous prayer warrior a good evangelist, and a faithful pastor. I always feel like I could pray more. I always feel like I could evangelize more. I always feel like I could give more of my resources and time. But God does not expect our good works to be flawless in order for them to be good. If God only accepted perfect obedience from his children, perfect people, then the Bible would have nothing good to say about Job and David and, a, and anyone else except for Jesus Christ. But realize when we sin, our union with Christ is not in jeopardy, but our communion with him is. I love John Calvin's phrase that God, while not ceasing to love his children, can still be wondrously angry toward them. God will never hate us, but he will be merciful and, and frightening us with his wrath so that we would shake off our sluggishness, as Calvin says. God's children will never be pristine and, and unfeeling in, in their holiness as God is, but we should be looking to grow in our holiness. Christians should display a, a consistent pattern of obedience along with a quick habit to go to God for, for forgiveness when we sin. That is how we can be established as blameless in holiness. And we can have the same confidence that Paul has and enjoys in 1 Corinthians 4. So the Bible clearly teaches that holiness is possible. This is good news. This isn't bad news. And you have permission to see evidences of grace in your life. You're, you're, you're allowed and expected then to be obedient. You'll never be perfect in this life. And you can't do anything to earn God's love. But as redeemed and regenerate children of God, you don't have to be a spiritual failure. By the mercies of God, you can present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as Romans says, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
So what do we do with this? You know, there are very few things in life that are not very helpful, like post-game interviews. How many of you watched football yesterday or this week at all? Anyone? Seriously? Hardly any of you are saved, apparently, huh? We're right in the middle of college bowl season, right? I watched two games yesterday. I think there's five on tomorrow. So you know where I'll be tomorrow. But the one of the most unhelpful things is post-game interviews, right? The game's done, and they, they race up to a player to ask him questions. They're, they're the most unhelpful thing. They're pointless, it seems. You know, what do you expect they're going to say? You know, what's the talk going to be like? How, how we always believed in ourselves. We gave 110%. These kids deserve all the credit in the world. Really? All of it? Like all the credit in the world? No one else gets credit at GC's kids? You know, part of the problem with the interviews that happen post-game is really the dumb questions. You know, the interviewer comes to the player after this big game and his mind's set on this and they, and they rehash it all. So, so you caught the pass at midfield and you slip past the safety and then sprint it towards the end zone. And take us through your thoughts as you were doing that. I mean, what do you think the receiver is going to stay there? Your thoughts. Well, my thoughts were run faster. Don't get hit. And it's not like he's going to deconstruct the meaning of life in that moment. He's a football player. And so, not always helpful. And, there, and there's a hazard here when we talk about a, a big subject like holiness that we can end and not be very helpful to the listener. And we've talked about parts of 1 Peter 1, encouraging you to remember who you are in Christ. But how do we do that? How do we live holy? How do we remember who we are? Well, if you look down in 1 Peter 1 to verse 18 and 19, I think it's some helpful words here. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Our hearts need to be so filled with awe and wonder of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Friends, this is the key. You know, for a moment as we end, think about this from John 17. John 17, as Jesus is praying to his father the night before he dies, he makes an astounding statement. Do you remember the statement? He says, and, and for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. He says, Jesus says, I sanctify myself so that they might be sanctified. What is sanctity? It's holiness. I sanctify myself. What does he mean? Does he mean that he's going to be moral now? No. Christ is the standard of morality. He is perfect. So, so what does he mean then? I, I sanctify myself. Well, he's saying I'm, I'm giving myself away. I am setting myself apart for them. For you. For me. Christ is saying, I'm not going to die for myself. I'm not dying for me. I'm dying for them. Why? Why is he doing this? Well, we know it's for our redemption. We need to be 
bought back from the slave market of sin, but there's more. He is sanctifying himself. He is setting himself apart for us to show us what life should be. He loves us and wants us to know the freedom of not living for ourselves anymore. And there's freedom in that, friends. You don't have to be buried with the weight of trying to live for yourself. It's, it's claustrophobic to live that way. Life is all about you. And Jesus dies for us that we can experience the freedom of love that you don't need to live for yourself. You live for God. You live for others. And this is why the gospel is precious to us, to see Christ sanctify himself, to set himself apart for the glory of God and for us. And when you see that, when you understand it, you will freely give yourself away. You will live in holiness, set apart for God. And when you see Christ sanctifying himself, living for you, you'll be able to live for him. To the degree you see what your sin cost him, to that degree, you'll be holy. You know, in the Old Testament, God's holiness is awesome. But in the New Testament, God's holiness and Jesus Christ giving himself is gorgeous. It is beautiful. So look at it. Dwell on that until it makes you holy. Remind yourself again that you live for him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the many blessings that you've given to us. Even as I reflect on this last year, God, you have been faithful to us. And God, as we have been reminded again from your word, you have called us to be holy, to be set apart from this world. And not just set apart on our own for our own sake, we're set apart for you. You've called us and you've adopted us into your family. And we're now children of God. Once alienated. Far from God. With no hope to save ourselves. You've brought us in. You've redeemed us. And God, I pray for those that are here this morning that have never experienced this. They are not children obedient to you. They're sons and daughters of disobedience. Living and working for Satan. And God, I ask that you would save them. That you would redeem them. That you would give them faith to believe and to trust in you. And you would bring them from death to life. God, we ask that you would help us to live holy lives in 2018. That we would remind ourselves on a daily basis of the gospel. Of what you've done for us. God, I ask that you would protect us. You protect us from evil. You protect us from, from patterns of sin in our lives, that we would be quick to confess it. Father, help us as the body of Christ to love one another, to show love and care, to show involvement in, 
each other's lives. Help us to to develop relationships with one another this year. I pray, God, that the only time we don't see each other is just Sundays, but that we have lives that are intertwined with one another. We care for one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. God, help us to be faithful in this. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.